Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I'm waiting for Kali to send me a Zoom invitation to a chat. And Kali Annis is there. Join our cloud meeting. Collie, 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 Collie. How are you? You look good. Thank you. So do you. The beard is almost down to your knees. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I look about 700 years old. <laughs> I was out in the uh, in the garden centre doing, a, or not in the garden centre, in the allotment today doing a bit of work. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure people walking past were doing double takes thinking a gnome had come to life. <laughs> <laughs> look, it's an actual garden gnome. Fine, handsome gnome, it has to be said. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> you lie with the best of you. <laughs> Could we all do something that I keep forgetting to do every time we have a collective call? Can we all say hello together on the count of three so at least I can match up the audio? Yeah, sure thing. One, two, three. Hello! hello. <laughs> We're live! Hello! <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Do you want to know where I am, Holly? I would love to know where you are. I'm in Africa. Unfortunately, not the continent. Yeah. But I'm in the African section of the zoo. Fabulous. And I'm looking at some friends of yours. Oh. I'm looking at the most beautiful painted dogs. And I know they have a, a few different names, but I know them as African painted dogs. And I know that you're an expert about these guys. And I'm dying to hear all about them because they're so stunning. Fabulous. But first, um, tell us who you are, Holly. Uh, right, so my name is Holly English, and I'm a PhD student in the UCD. I'm part of the Lab of Wildlife Ecology and Behaviour, and I am a very long-term African wild dog fan. They are absolutely stunning-looking animals. It's very wolf-like, but with right. shorter, shorter kind of hair, and it looks like it's been... Uh, uh, you know, tearing through a paint shop and, and spilling over various colours all over it. <laughs> mm. That's a great description. Thank you very much. <laughs> Holly, why do you love wild dogs? Because I know that you love wild dogs, African wild dogs. Yeah, God, I love wild dogs for a lot of reasons. I've loved them since I was a kid. And I realised wild dogs are a great example of all the things I'm really interested. And those things are movement, for one. That's really what I work on now. I mean, they travel incredible distances, like hundreds of kilometers and with such ease like they have this amazing endurance and um, the other thing that I've always felt very drawn to is their behavior and their social behavior because they're really pack animals and the way that they they live in these packs is really incredible and quite special and unique I think 
what are wild dogs, I suppose, to get really to get really fundamental, what are African wild dogs? Yeah. The technical question. What is it? What what is a wild dog? What is a wild dog? So a wild dog is a member of the canid family. So the canids are the dogs. Anything that looks kinda of like a dog is a canid. So they live in sub Saharan Africa. And they, as you said, they do have that sort of typical doggy appearance, sort of wolf-like, but they're very light. They're still quite tall, um, and they have those very distinctive long legs that the canids have, which is what makes them so good at covering so much ground. But they have that very distinctive coat, and yeah, they're a very special predator living in the African kind of savanna ecosystem. Although they are found in like scrubbier areas as well, especially at the moment with their ranges contracted. So I'm standing out here now looking in at the uh, the wild dogs that are in Dublin Zoo and they're just so beautiful and they're really curious about what's happening and they're sort of peeping around corners and looking at me and they, they have a little bit of a look of a hyena about them, don't they, as well? Sort of, they're, they're lighter in, in weight, they're smaller in size, but their jawline looks a little bit like a hyena and they also move in a very beautiful way. They're really light on their feet and very um, very elegant, almost like foxes, aren't they? Yeah, they have that very distinctive kind of trotting gait. They're really light on their feet and they really cover a lot of ground very efficiently that way. A lot of people do mix them up with hyenas. I actually, I know for a fact the first time that I saw wild dogs in the flesh was in Dublin Zoo. And if I remember correctly, it might have been my second visit, um, there was like a group of adults there being like, look at the hyenas. And I was like 11 and went up and was like, excuse me, those are African wild dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Would that look at that similarity be down to convergent evolution or just because they ha- hang around similar habitats? I mean, in, in terms of coat color, yeah, you'll notice a lot of predators that live in that sort of environment have these kind of mm. yellowy, browny coat colors. Yeah. Apart from that, they actually do look reasonably different. I think once you've seen them yeah. in kind of close proximity or um, you've really looked at a picture of a wild dog and looked at a picture of a hyena, you see there are a lot of differences there. Hyenas are a lot bulkier um, and they have like a very, well, spotted hyenas are the ones that people mix them up with. They have this mm. kind of very distinctive spot pattern, whereas wild dogs have patches. Their coats are really, really variable, but it's this like really patchy sort of coloration instead and wild dogs again have that very kind of typical dog-like um body shape but hyenas have a sort of sloping back and they're actually not members of the dog family oh um at all a lot of people think they are but they're more closely related to cats what wow cats yeah there's a whole episode in that one yeah <laughs> so you're telling me i have three hyenas upstairs in my i know right sneaky room. hyenas <laughs> yeah did you know that Colette? no i didn't know that that's incredible <laughs> That's a good one. We'll have to get, we'll have to get a hyena specialist on to have a chat with you about that. <laughs> really good. And their uh, their fake female uh, penises. That's another one. There's a very deep dark hole. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good one. It is. Hyenas are amazing. absolutely. Yeah, we can battle out about which is best as well. Trust Kalyanis oh, to yeah. bring in fake. <laughs> female penises (laughs) i have to say i thought we'd get a little bit further into the conversation before the genitals came up but um here we are (laughs) sweet summer child oh Oh, holly my dear you have no idea So, Holly, where do um, where do these wild dogs live? So, they're from sub-Saharan Africa, and they used to be found across most of it. 
but now it's a different story. They've lost 93% of their original range since Europeans went and hopped over to Africa. So their real strongholds now would be sort of South Africa, Kenya, Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe. But yeah, they've been lost from the majority of where they used to live. We do tend to associate them with kind of open savanna areas. But that's, I mean, again, back before they lost most of their range, that would have been more accurate. Where they're found now tends to be in a lot of uh, more closed habitats. They're still found in some savanna areas, especially places like Zambia. But a lot of their range in places like South Africa and Kenya, for example, they're in these much scrubbier areas. And the fact that their range is, is shrinking, is that largely down to just habitat loss due to human expansion? And does that bring them into conflict with farmers? And is that the reason for it? Yeah. The original range loss was largely related to direct persecution. Oh. Yeah. So again, when the Europeans went over and colonized and started making their game reserves and things, they actually viewed African wild dogs as a, a pest or a vermin species and would offer rewards for shooting them. Like we consider dog, uh, like we consider foxes and stuff now. Exactly. Do you know, unfortunately, it's it's a story that really hasn't gone away and you're exactly right. I mean, we see it all over the place still. They could have gone the way of the, the, uh, the thylacine. The Tasmanian tiger, that doesn't look like a tiger. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's mad. Um, so I'm looking at them here and they're just bouncing around the place. Or they're, um, This is part of a family that I'm looking at here. And ju- aren't they beautiful to watch with their... They have a dark coat and it's mottled of different colours. Like somebody just threw a whole lot of paint at them. They're absolutely stunning. But what is their lifestyle like? Is it like foxes? Is it like wolves? Do they live in packs? You know, how do they hunt? How many pups do they have? All that sort of stuff. So more similar to wolves, they do live in packs. You'll have your alpha pair, again, similar to wolves. So you'll have mammy and daddy, right? They're the boss and they're the only ones that are breeding. You also tend to have a lot of uncles and aunts in packs as well. So that's related to how packs form in the first place, actually. So usually you'll have a litter of pups that have grown up and it splits. So all the sisters will go off together and all the brothers will go off together. Hmm. They'll wander around for a while until they find another group of brothers or sisters and then they form a new pack. Wow. So you always have these kind of aunts and uncles hanging around as well. And then sometimes you'll have like a litter that's grown up and they hang around for a year or two before they decide to, to go off and make their own new pack. And then you'll have the pups as well, depending on the time of year. In terms of litter size, it's pretty variable. You can have up to, I've heard reports of 18 anyway, certainly. Really? Yeah, now that is the, the upper end. Wow. And recruitment or uh, like survival to adulthood is like fairly low out of a litter size of 18 you'd be doing well to Hmm. to raise most of those um but yeah i think like more average would be kind of maybe six or a little more but maybe six recruited to the pack and that varies with locality as well well we also should i mention the big climate change thing are we going to go down that wormhole now Oh yeah, always hit on that. Isn't that part of our remit as, you know, zoologists and, and environmentalists in general? Absolutely. You give, yeah. You have to mention it. I just said I, I better warn you that I'm gonna go down that rabbit hole. But um I think as well, like when we think about climate change we tend to think of very particular animals. But this is a global problem and it's affecting all different types of animals in all different types of areas, different environments. And when we think of 
like a mammal as well. I don't think we really think about mammals a huge amount mm. in terms of climate change. When we do, we're really thinking Arctic animals. Mm. So you've got this mammal chilling out at the equator and you think, oh, they're probably fine. They're, they're used to heat. But certainly the case for wild dogs and possibly for lots of other species that we haven't even unraveled all the effects yet, they're already living at kind of the upper extreme of temperature that they can handle. So even incremental changes that we are seeing now can have negative effects. So it has been shown now that wild dogs, there raise fewer pups successfully when it's hotter. Oh, that's bad news. When they're hunting, they're, they're quite successful. Yes. On a more positive note, they are quite, aren't they? Their percentage rate of kills is quite high. And also, while, while you touch on that, isn't it quite gruesome how they dispatch their victims? All right, let's get gory. Yeah. <laughs> how do they hunt and how do they kill? So this is one of the reasons that people really took exception to them as well when they were classified as vermin. Um, they thought that they were killing a lot of surplus antelope that they didn't need, that it was for sport, which was absolutely not true. Um, but people were also pretty grossed out by how they kill the prey, which is through disembowelment. Mm. So I will say, like, as a spectator, you know, it, it is gory, but they're very efficient. They're not just good at hunting in terms of, like, percentage success, but, like, they dispatch their prey really quickly, which, I mean, you can compare it to, to lions and leopards and things, that typical cat strategy of, of strangling and suffocating prey can actually go on for quite a long time, whereas disembowelment by a wild dog pack, at least you go quick. Okay. Well, there, there is that. I'm glad to hear that. Are they strategic, like wolves, or how do they go about their hunt, and how long does it take, and what distances do they roam? Do you know, that's a really interesting question at the minute, because we have this sort of story of, again, it's largely what we see in documentaries, and that can be linked to just where it's easy to film and, and what we knew about them and how what we know about species is always changing as we study them more and more. We do tend to think of them out in these open areas, big packs going after big prey like wildebeest or zebra and chasing them for hours and um, and wearing them out and they are endurance hunters they're very good at that um, they can run um, for huge distances and really sustain these long hunts and basically just exhaust the prey they are very good at doing that but they have these other strategies that we know less about and again it's linked in with where we tend to find them now and more and more in these kind of scrubby, more wooded areas, um, it's harder to just run and run and run because you've got obstacles in the way. Um, and the prey species that are there are, are different and behaving differently as well. So, for example, in Kenya, they eat a lot of dictic. Yay, um, dick dick. <laughs> we have to get a, a pick pick of a dick dick up there on the. We do. For the listeners. What is a dick dick? <laughs> Absolutely. I want to be very explicit in saying that that is an antelope. <laughs> Are they the smallest species of antelope? I think, I'm not entirely sure if they're the smallest, could be. I'm going to say they are, but yeah, they are one of the one of the smaller species. Yeah, exactly. As in like size of a, a, a you know, a small dog nearly, like very, very small. Maybe a hare. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really, really? Tiny, tiny little things. Yeah, they're and tiny. They, and they do sound like something you would have named, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> one of the biggest trails in Africa I don't know if I ever mentioned to you I've been in Africa no but, you um, hadn't actually one of the biggest trails I must tell you about it sometime um, <laughs> don't tell me your greatest thrill was seeing a dick dick well, well it was great the fact that somebody shouted look there's a dick dick and, and I just immediately was like I can't wait to get my dick dick pick pick 
which is like, you know, for me, <laughs> you know. Fair play for, for saying it without tripping over yourself, feck, that's all I'll say. Feck the elephants and the, ty- and the lions, you know, feck all the beautiful sunsets. It's that pick, 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 pick that really made Africa for me. Absolutely. Congratulations for getting that in at least five times so far. That's good going. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Well, I'm going to break your heart now. I'm talking about them getting eaten. They're, Look, they're great snacks. Here. If it's going to be any podcast you talk about eating dick dick, you might as well do it on this one. <laughs> it might as well be here. <laughs> I'm really going to get mileage out of this. <laughs> so they're, hunt, they're hunting uh, the dick dicks. We're going to get through this. Yes. We are going to yes, get through this. <laughs> we are going to get through it. Uh, so they hunt their dick dicks. Um, and they <laughs> we are professionals. Come on. <laughs> oh, Jesus oh. Christ. Middle-aged oh, going stop. on 14. Yeah, no. <laughs> they, 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 that particular antelope will... Let's see why I changed the name. That particular species of antelope will, is a scrub and forest uh, dweller. That's why they're so hard to spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a totally different way of going about finding your prey. Um, so they they'll go through these scrubbier areas and they basically flush them out of the grass and catch them really quickly and it, it's totally different to that kind of typical what we expect from them uh, similarly in Botswana they've been found going for scrub hares which are about the same size in similar kinds of habitats uh, so they're really adaptable wow that's good which is a kind of this is something we see in the canid family a lot but really this is like an open area of research and really exploring these other predation strategies and the energetic consequences as well. And this links right back into our, our climate change issue that I mentioned a little while back. Oh, as in, so you mean like the amount of energy they have to expand to go and catch prey, what they're burning off as opposed to what they're eating at the end of the day? Exactly. Yeah, this is where we get really nerdy in the specifics of what I'm interested in. Yeah, so so basically, if you're putting a lot of energy into running after a an impala or gazelle, you get a lot of meat for it. But if you have put an equal amount of energy into getting a tiny dick dick, which is not much of a mouthful for a pack of dogs. Absolutely. And that would be leading to less successful rearing of young, etc., etc. Exactly. And uh, this kind of prey size question is um, very relevant mm. to social systems and predators. Yeah. So, like, again, you were asking about foxes earlier, Colette, and foxes eat small things. So you're not going to have a group of foxes going after a mouse. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. So they'll breed together and they like they're social in the sense that there'll be a breeding pair. And sometimes they might have like a cub that sticks around for a little bit longer or whatever. Yeah. But when they hunt, they go off and they, they do it alone because they're eating small things. And then wild dogs are really kind of held as this like pinnacle of like sociality in, in a carnivore. And they're really um, dependent on living in a pack. And even in terms of conserving them, we think about the population, not just in terms of how many individual wild dogs we have left. We think about the number of packs because the pack is really the reproductive unit. And now we have them eating these small animals um, that do not feed a pack, but they still go out and do it together. It's not like the fox strategy where foxes go off on their own and they meet back at the den. Like the wild dogs will still all kind of go out and then they'll all just start flushing through the grass. Oh, wow. you know, grab these dick dicks or scrub hairs or whatever as they go, but they still go out and hunt as a team. So it, there's some really interesting things going on there, and it's really something we're fully unraveling and exploring now. So is there is there a potential there that, like the scrub hairs and, and, and the dick dicks, that they mightn't have preyed on them before 
climate change made it made it you know a, a, a necessity for them to do so. Is that potentially the case? And would would that be you know a disaster for these smaller animals that aren't used to these wild dogs chasing after them? So I don't think going for these smaller prey is a totally new thing. I think it's just something we were a bit slower to catch on to. Fair enough. But at the same time, it could certainly be happening more. And that we don't have an answer to yet. Well, that's the honest answer. We, it's, you still have to look into it. and It's an ongoing... That's the, the beauty of science, isn't it? There's always more questions. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, it's fa- really interesting stuff, though. Really interesting stuff. I think so. Mm. <laughs> So Holly, I'm I'm standing here in front of the uh, the wild dog habitat in Dublin Zoo. But for me, it's a thrill to see them here. But what was it like for you when you saw them in their natural habitat in Southern Africa? Oh yeah, that was again. I became really interested in wild dogs as a kid. So I was ten when I figured out what they were, and it was really sort of love at first sight scenario. That was the day, like find out what wild dogs were and decide to be a zoologist on the same day. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> didn't know what a zoologist was before then. I saw a documentary about them and I've referred to documentaries a couple of times so I just want to make it really clear that documentaries are incredible. Yeah, they are. And really open up access to nature and these kind of wildlife careers to people who are not necessarily tuned into them. Because it is like quite a bizarre career choice. Do you know, it's like not something you necessarily stumble upon um, going about your own way in a lot of circumstances. So for me, it was nature documentaries. I saw a documentary about wild dogs, and I remember like going to my mom, being like, "Oh my god, I saw this." Doc- I was a really nerdy kid. I just like sought out this documentary by myself. Wasn't <laughs> even being made forced to watch or anything. And what was it about them? Like, what was that thing about them that hit you? I think a lot of it was the pack structure and the fact that they do actually. And this sounds really anthropomorphic but like that they do actually look out for each other in a sense that we don't really usually see in nature. Yeah. And even back to what you're actually asking me about seeing them in South Africa, the first place I saw them was a reserve called Makuzi in Brazil in South Africa. And they had one pack there at the time and there were six adults. Two of them were missing a leg each. They'd been caught in snares. Snaring is a big issue there. So conservationists on the ground had intervened to amputate the legs. So there had been a recovery period, but I mean, they were straight back with the pack relatively quickly and the pack never abandoned them, even though they were suddenly missing a limb, which is, you know, it's a considerable loss and something we don't really expect wild animals to live with. Um, in the end, the, like the two of them, like they continued to hunt. They were often the ones to make the kill, actually, because they were using like the back leg. They both were missing a back leg each and... They were nearly using it like a kind of springboard to launch themselves at whatever prey they were going after. So that's the level of like, oh, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it. Doggedness. (laughs) (laughs) I had to get it in there. That's the level of of, they really stick together as a group. Amazing. Yeah, they're they're real survivors. Yeah. You know, and in that, that period where there was obviously a recovery period for those individuals and they the pack stuck with them yeah. through that brilliant so this was something i'd kind of gotten that impression and then to go and see them in the wild and say yeah this really is the case was fantastic how do they communicate when they're hunting and you know taking down a larger prey item um so they do seem to be quite visual in terms of the way they hunt they're crepuscular so they hunt at dawn and dusk usually this again is an adaptation to living somewhere very hot because 
it's nice and cool or relatively cool compared to the rest of the day at those times. Um, and at night time, you want to avoid things like lions and spotted hyenas, which are problems for wild dogs. They will kill them. Right. Um, and they will um, scavenge kills and, and go for pups and all sorts. So they hunt at dawn and dusk. So they do seem to be quite visual. We don't, like, I think with any kind of dog or relative of a dog, we really think about smell, which is a very heightened sense as well. But I think for the hunting, they are kind of keeping an eye on each other. But this is another kind of aspect to their behavior that we're learning more about at the moment because again we kind of had this story of nearly like some kind of military unit like so efficient and so tuned into each other all the time and now we think it might actually be a little bit more random than we thought it was and they are all just going right we're running after that animal let's just all go for it so it could be less coordinated than we thought it was originally one really cool thing though there was some cool research that came out um from a population in Botswana there a couple of years ago so before they go hunting they have what's called a rally so basically they're like psyching each other up and like yeah okay let's go hunting now let's do it so they're excited and they're kind of running around and like it's very noisy and it's really like psyching themselves up and not all rallies actually lead to a hunt but you know you could have like one dog who kind of starts it off or a couple of them start it off but this um, study in Botswana found that they noticed they were sneezing a lot during these rallies. And they think that the sneezing is a way of voting. So you can say, right, I want to hunt now, I'm sneezing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the the vote uh, the votes even are weighted. That's brilliant. So if an alpha sneezes, that's, that's worth more than somebody else sneezing. That's very, very cool. So we don't know if that's something bizarre and unique to that area in Botswana, if it's something seen across wild dogs everywhere. But that is like a very weird novel form of communication we hadn't thought about before. It could also be a sort of like clearing the airways thing. Like I'm excited, I'm going to hunt, I'm going to clear my airways, <laughs> clear the nasal passages, let's go. That's brilliant. Well, I tell you one thing, it's good to have people like yourself studying these animals and, and helping us discover more about them and their fascinating lives. Absolutely. I mean, they just are incredible and incredibly beautiful and They are. I mean just look at them there now. They're they're running around and they're they're still a little bit shy, but you can see how how interested and curious they are. And how that loud helicopter yeah. in the background is driving me nuts. Whatever the heck is going on. <laughs> oh well, we we can't hear it. We can't hear it. It's all good. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, I'm just wondering, so you mentioned that you're more interested in how many groups are left rather than how many individuals. So do you have an idea of how they're doing in terms of numbers and groups and conservation? So we think there are about 700 packs left uh, maybe even fewer than that. And the last uh, population estimate for number of individuals was about like 6,600-ish. Wow. The IUCN, so that's the International Union for Conservation and Nature, they do the red lists and all the species, like threat level um, assessments. They have them listed as endangered with a decreasing population. And again, now that we're, we're only really unraveling this climate change aspect of their conservation in the last few years, mm. before that, our, and like still very relevant threats include habitat loss. Again, like they cover such huge areas. It's quite difficult now in this ever more crowded world to make sure there's space for them, especially, again, this varies a lot by country, but in some areas, lots of fences and things are going up. We're really fragmenting the landscape. Yeah. Now they're pretty good at getting through fences compared to a lot of other animals, but this is still definitely a big factor. And a huge factor in the conservation is disease. They contract disease from domestic dogs very easily. And because they're so sociable and the packs are so tight-knit, if one of them contracts disease, it's usually rabies or canine distemper. The whole pack will get it. That wipes out a whole pack. Wow. And that's bad news. Absolutely. So, Holly, here's here's this difficult question for you that I suppose I'm going to throw at you. Why should somebody sitting in a house in Dublin care about wild dogs? Well, they really are really unique animals and really special. They're the only species in their genus. So in terms of like evolution, they're very unique. If we lose them, we lose this whole sort of evolutionary lineage that disappears with them. From what we've just been talking about now, it's clear that we're still learning new things about them all of the time. And we know that even though they have all these threats facing them, first of all, all these threats do connect back to human activity in some way. So I do think we have a sort of obligation to care about their conservation. But they really can bounce back when they're given a chance. And I think they really can be this fantastic flagship species for conservation in action. And for me, like I've said earlier, you know, seeing that documentary about wild dogs when I was 10 changed my life because that was the spark. That was when I got out the dictionary and was like, right, zoologist that's what I'm going to do and I never wavered from that since and I really think they can be that spark for other kids or adults as well um you mean the dick dictionary (laughs) in the dick dictionary exactly (laughs) well I'll tell you one thing Holly I am so glad that you watched that documentary because I never would have met you and um you are you are an inspiration with your dedication to your your field and I'm glad you're doing it and I think the wild dogs and All the canids are very lucky to have you. Thank you so much. 
Absolutely. And I'm just looking at these guys here again. They're so beautiful and it'd be heartbreaking if they weren't in the world, you know, and I'm, I'm really delighted that you're helping them to to be with us, to remain with us. Absolutely. Anyone who's really sceptical needs to have a look at them. Go to Dublin Zoo and check them out. <laughs> and it was lovely talking to you. Yeah. You too. Thank you. We'll see you after lockdown. We might talk about uh, naked mole rats because that's right up our alley, isn't it? Oh, yes. I am always happy to talk about mole rats. No one ever wants to talk to me about mole rats. It's <laughs> well, we do. We definitely do. As soon as this <laughs> lockdown is. is over, we'll do that. Absolutely. Bring it on. All right, guys. Mind yourselves. I'll talk to you later, Colette. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, guys. The Critter Shed is a member of The Warren, the home of great Irish podcasts. For more, including my podcast, How to Be Sound, see thewarren.ie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.